0: You, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway.
1: Okay, excellent. So today, my guest is Steve Wiegand, his new book, 1876 Year of the Gun. Um, was a really excellent read. Um, I'm glad I was turned on to it by, by some folks. Steve, thank you so much for being here on the Salt Lake Dirt podcast.
0: Well, thanks, Kyler.
1: I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so I guess first thing, I mean, I, I, I didn't put it together until recently. So I'm a, I'm a U.S. history high school teacher um, by day. And, and your book, U.S. History for Dummies, <laughs> is something I read when I first got into um, teaching U.S. history, and it's one that I continue to recommend to teachers, new teachers coming in um, because it it does such a great job at kind of, you know, just going over, you know, what you need to know. And I think it's an an excellent text and um, it's been in print for a while now, right?
0: Yeah. It's uh, actually, it's now in its fourth edition uh, came out uh, last year. The fourth edition, it's been uh, published in Chinese and German and for some strange reason, it's also been published in Croatian. I have no idea why.
1: Wow, people are interested over there. I guess, um, very cool. And um, so, yeah, I'm a fan of that book for sure. And then when I got when I got this book, uh, you know, I'm I'm in Utah, so it's always kind of had, you know, I grew up here, and I always had that kind of West um, interest in the West. And uh, you know, I think you you live in Arizona right now, correct? Right. That's right. Yeah. So I think there's just, you know. American culture, one is is you know Western Western a uh, Wild West culture in a lot of ways, and it's just become you know a, p- a part of America. So, I am just really curious, specifically um, the subject matter. I know I know you you get into it in the book and like kind of growing up watching TV shows, uh, you know westerns from the 1950s. I'm really curious about um, what kind of drew you to this specific point in U.S. history and why you decided to write about it.
0: Well, it's as you said. I was I was a child of the fifties, and you couldn't turn on a television and go to the movies in the fifties without seeing a western movie or a western TV show. So I kind of grew up with that. It was kind of embedded in me early. And then I was a, I was born and raised in California for the most part. So I've always been in the West. And then as a history writer, uh, I was intrigued by. Uh, the year in particular, 1876, because it was such a pivotal, pivotal year in uh, in American history. And originally, the book started out, it was going to be a very short, small book about six events that all happened to Western legends in 1876. And it kind of got away from me like a stagecoach and <laughs> under attack by the Indians. Uh <laughs> And turn it into the 500 page uh tome it is now so
1: yeah fascinating stuff i mean um i think you know so many of the you know i'm a big fan of deadwood and um i think just like you said like this has just been such a part of american culture um since you know media has really you know built upon that tv shows movies and you know of course with it with anything like that there's a there's a lot of errors in that, but it like it's a fascinating time period. Um, so I would love to talk about. I was actually watching clips of it this morning, um, because I had not seen it before. But the the old TV show from the 50s that you, uh, was it the Bat Masterson TV show or what? What which was that?
0: Well, it was the the one that I really loved as a kid was uh, Wild Bill Hickok.
1: That's right, Wild Bill. Was yeah.
0: played by a, an actor named Guy Madison. And this guy was so squeaky clean that he looked like he could work in a microchip factory. <laughs> I mean, he never had a speck of dirt on him. And he had a uh, an old Western character actor named Andy Devine, who had this gravel voice and who was his partner Jingles, his sidekick. And uh, that was my show. I'd never, I tried never to miss it when I was a kid. And uh, of course, the real Wild Bill Hickok wasn't. Uh, wasn't at all like that Uh, (laughs) right right so but the the, uh, that show is kind of a it's a great uh, example of of what i hope the book is about which is how there's there are the facts and there's the myth and somewhere in between is the legend and Mm -hmm. somewhere in the legend is the truth right and the the truth is that the real Wild Bill Hickok was a complicated individual. He uh, got into gunfights. He killed people. He hung around in saloons. He drank a lot. He played poker a lot. Uh, but he wasn't a bad guy either. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was not a he was not a, a complete fabrication of uh, the media either then or now. Um, but he's certainly been his been mythologized and exaggerated Uh, even even during his own day he was reputed to have killed 100 men and uh in gunfights and the actual number was six uh and the last one of those six was happened to be one of his deputies that he shot by mistake so um uh i i got in 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 really interested in these these uh, figures uh as as real people um and uh that to me that combined with the legendary status that they they achieved uh was kind of the the, the impetus of the book anyway mm-hmm.
1: no that's fascinating but i think one thing that i really one thing that is so cool about this book is that it does have um a good selection of of old photos like really high quality photos and color photos there Um, I, I'm just always kind of intrigued by, it seemed like these guys, I mean, these guys, they, yeah, like you said, they were, they were legends when they were still alive and a a lot of them. And so they kind of, um, I don't know if they played upon that or recognized, um, the monetary benefits of, of being a legend, (laughs) a living legend. I'm looking at specifically the photos right now, Buffalo Bill Cody, and he's like completely decked out, um, he he's with uh, the picture with Sitting Bull, famous photo. Yeah, uh, where he's pointing. I mean, I just like they're you know they're they're entertainers. Like early on, it seems like they 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 definitely picked up on that before you know any invention of of, of you know movies and and any of that. So it's so interesting to see these folks, um, you know, recognizing that how much of an influence they had on um, the culture, or at least that's my, that's what it seems like to me.
0: No, I think you're dead on, and uh, Buffalo Bill is probably the, of, of the six. He's the quintessential uh, guy who capitalized on his, uh, his celebrity. Uh, in fact, he, he spent a good part of his life, the last 40 years of his life, either on the stage uh, performing in melodramas or running a Wild West show that brought the Wild West uh, legend and iconic figures to the rest of the world he spent mm. a total of about nine years in europe touring uh different countries so he's a perfect example but getting back to wild bill hickok for a minute he was he didn't like he, he performed a little bit with uh, buffalo bill for a little while on stage he hated it but he also was aware of his celebrity and he uh, occasionally would hang around railroad depots in frontier towns and the tourists would get off and see this character wearing this outlandish outfit. And they knew right away that he was somebody. And then when they were told he was Wild Bill Hickok, that was oohs and ahs. Um, And it's it's funny that one of the things I learned in the book uh, was hammered home to me, was we tend to think that these guys were created by television and the movies. But in fact, in 1876, 80% 80% of the American population lived east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So they knew about as much about Deadwood or Dodge City or Tombstone as they did about uh, Bangladesh or, or Kuala Lumpur. I mean, they, they didn't have any clue what was going on out there. And they relied on dime novels, which were cheaply produced, total fiction uh, of the exploits of these characters, but they used real-life characters like Buffalo Bill or Wild Bill Hickok and also in stage presentations and melodramas that were also highly exaggerated uh, or wholly fabricated uh, about their exploits and that's what they had to go on uh, most of the people in america in 1876 so these guys these these wild west figures assumed their their personas that they have now even as early as when they were still alive and still around
1: Hmm. now that's so interesting i think um, at the very, like, I think it's like the first page or two of your book, you have some quotes there. And one quote, I actually wrote it on my, on my, um, classroom board. So it says events themselves are unimportant. It is the perception of events that is crucial, um, from an American historian, John E. Furling. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's so uh, true. I mean, I think uh, the perception of it, uh, and I talk a lot about that in my, with my high school students, we, we, there's one, um. One place I was able to visit up, it's up in Idaho, and it's called the Bear River Massacre. And I don't know if you've had the chance to go up there, but they right. have. Um, what's so fascinating about it? The monument is there, but then um, they have plaques throughout. Um, you know, since I think a few decades after the event happened, and it was first called like the Battle of Bear River, and then it kind of shifts, uh, the narrative shifts into the the ma- the 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 massacre at Bear River. But the cool thing is they've kept all the plaques up on this one kind of obelisk type um, monument. So you can kind of see how the interpretation or the clarification of history or or whatever. um, I I think just the fact that it kind of shifts in the telling of it over time. So I thought it was really cool. Usually, you know, usually stuff kind of gets um, brushed over or hidden or just completely reframed. But I love how this monument um, keeps all the plaques in place where, you know, over, you know, several decades Um, the chunks of time you see the different uh, interpretation of it. So fascinating stuff. I mean, um, I think what, in your opinion, what is probably with these, with these individuals, probably the biggest uh, shift in the 21st century, if there, if there even has been one, or has the mythology uh, and legendary status kind of continued as it was from maybe let's say when you, when you were a child, um, and first getting interested in these, or um, has it changed rad- radically, or has it', it kind of stayed significantly um, the same?
0: I, I think I think the the answer to that is it 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 varies widely from individual to individual. Uh, for instance, uh, a perfect example is uh, George Armstrong Custer. Uh, at the time of the Battle of the Little Big Horn, uh, where it was custer's last stand and and the indians had massacred uh, custer's seventh cavalry uh, it, it was that was the, the that was the way it was cast but almost immediately after the battle custer was criticized quite a bit and he was sort of vilified as as an idiot who led his men into into a slaughter um, his wife who outlived him by well, I'm trying to remember, by, by a good 60 years, she became a professional Custer defender. And she wrote three different books about life with, with Custer that were very popular and very well-written. She lectured incessantly about him. She had monuments erected to him in various places. And she changed the, uh, the perception of Custer from being kind of a stumble-bum to being an American hero mm-hmm she died and i think about an hour and a half after she died the legend started reversing itself <laughs> so that today he's vilified again and seen as as a bad guy and certainly a bad military guy um so that's one example uh bat masterson is largely forgotten uh i was in canyon texas which is in the heart of where bat masterson was a buffalo hunter and a pretty famous guy, killed his first man in a barroom fight. And uh, I asked a young college student who was a waitress at a restaurant if she knew who Bat Masterson was. And she said, yeah, he was a guy in a movie. And that's <laughs> pretty much what you knew about him. So, uh, um, and, and another story on that line was the eminent the biographer of Bat Masterson was a guy named Robert de Arment. And his wife was on a plane Uh, sitting next to a baseball coach major league baseball coach and she mentioned that uh, her husband had written books about bat masterson and the coach replied oh who did he play for (laughs) (laughs) so he's kind of kind of gone by the boards uh wyatt earp has gone up and down At, at the time of his life he was kind of considered a shady character which he he was probably on the other side of the law way more than he was actually ever a lawman during his lifetime he tried to correct his image Um, he had a biography written about him uh, just after he died in 1929 and that made him a hero again and then the movies really made him a hero again Uh, but he was much more complicated than that he was neither a real bad guy or a real good guy Mm -hmm. so it really depends on on which figure you're talking about uh as as to what their image is today um i think more important than any of the individuals though is that the sort of the iconic figures that they represented still are here uh George Lucas admitted when he did Star Wars that it was basically a Western movie put in space, <laughs> uh, where the, you had good guys and bad guys, and you had people making difficult choices, and uh, that's pretty much what these guys did.
1: Yeah, no, it, 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 I think that's like that classic appeal to it is is be, because it is like um, good guy versus bad guy. You know, you can that's that's the basis of so many books and films that just you know to this to this day interest us. Um so I think that was just um there's just a real hunger for that it sounds like especially in the 1950s and you know at, at least from the the TV um you know TV productions and movie productions there was so much of it coming out right at that point um and then I think I think Tomb the movie Tombstone I think that came out when I was a teenager that's Yeah I was in the
0: uh, 90 94 95 Yeah round. so I was a yeah. young
1: teenager but I remember um you know and I don't know how historically accurate that one is but I just just like the characters i mean oh my goodness and then and then when you 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 know you i remember hearing of the names growing up but then like realizing that these were real people um it's kind it's kind of, it kind of mind-blowing and even even if like elements are exaggerated but i think it sounds like from like reading more about these guys they were like they're bigger than life in a lot of ways
0: they really uh, were yeah yeah and they they did none of these guys were were phonies none of these guys were i had press agents that blew up their reputations it was sort of done for them um but they these guys were were in they all had gun battles with either native americans or or people had other people that had guns uh they lived in dangerous situations uh i don't think any of them lacked personal uh, physical courage mm-hmm. um and uh so they were the real deal it's just that they weren't as much of a big deal as as they subsequently came out to be um and the book is not i i i hope that i didn't it wasn't set up to debunk myths
1: Mm -mm, Um, it was more to
0: set up to say this is the story of these guys lives which was just as interesting as in the real thing as it was in the the myth and then i also wanted to get across that as important as what they actually did um, was the the perception we have of the West and how that affected us as Americans and our perception of ourselves and how the rest of the world looks at us. So um, that was part of it. And then the the final thing, and you know this as a, as a history teacher, is Mark Twain said that that history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes (laughs) and and i would say a corollary to that is history doesn't happen in a straight line Mm -hmm. and one of the things i wanted to do in this book was point out that we tend to look at okay 1876 there was cowboys and indians that's what was going on in america and in fact there were a whole lot of other things going on in america at the time and and so i tried to kind of put the events that i the main events that i write about in the book in in perspective with what was going on uh in the rest of the country
1: yeah no that's one thing i really appreciated just like you know a good historian in this book definitely you know i loved it and when you when you can kind of get the context of it what else was happening um because you hear about like i think there's mention of like alexander graham bell um, and all these different like historical events that we're familiar with um, growing up in in the U.S., um, and then just to see how some of them, you know, of course, they're just overlapping and hap- happening simultaneously. Sometimes, so it's really fascinating to to see the context of it and see all these different Americas happening simultaneously. I think that's really fascinating when you, when you study history in that capacity. It's it's pretty crazy how how many things um you know that sh- truly became like monumental history and or at least fascinating history overlap with with
0: each other right and, and the thing is it, like alexander graham bell is a good example i didn't know this before i did did the book i, I sort of vaguely had some idea within three hours of custer's battle at the little bighorn Alexander Graham Bell was at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia demonstrating his telephone. I mean, on the same day, within two or three hours. And it, it sort of gives you a, a feeling of how America was transitioning from sort of childhood to young adulthood in 1876. And uh, there were a lot of examples of that kind of thing going on. And you mentioned earlier that the uh, HBO show Deadwood, it, the Deadwood in 18... Was, pretty much started in 1876 by 1878 they had a telephone system mm. uh, which you, if you watch the hbo show which i really liked yeah um you don't get that sense that that it's part of the late 19th century
1: right no it's so true it's so true um yeah interesting stuff so i think i'm really curious like you you've had quite the career so uh your, your bio like so you've been in you were like a journalist for thirty-five years, um, working at newspapers. So I'm always fascinated talking to people who've been around um, you know, the news, the newspaper business
0: in particular. We should we should explain to your younger listeners what news <laughs> yeah, maybe we, what, what, <laughs> Once upon a time there was a mass medium.
1: <laughs> every <laughs> day print a, every day, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I first started teaching, like about fifteen years ago, we used to get um I'd get a stack of daily classroom newspapers from the, our local Salt Lake tribune um so you get like 10 papers every single weekday you know um and i'd use them for different things i feel like they w- were put to good use but uh it's just not even <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how to go about doing i don't think they offer that anymore you know no. um i mean it's changed drastically so i think you i don't know um are you, so are you retired out of have you have you um you kind of just work for, uh, like on your own projects at this point.
0: Yeah. I'm, I've been retired for quite a while from, from newspapers. Um, uh, a, a story that may be off, off, it's certainly off the book, but I got into newspapers and this is a true story from watching the adventures of Superman on television in the 1950s. Well, Because uh, anybody who knows me can tell you that I am in, incredibly congenitally lazy and I would watch Superman and I would see Clark Kent standing around mostly just talking and not doing anything until he went to change into his gym suit and jump out the window and fly away as Superman and I knew I couldn't be Superman but I thought heck I could be a reporter um so I, that's how I gravitated to to journalism and uh, I did that for thirty five years avoided meaningful labor for thirty five years <laughs> as a reporter um, and uh, i re- when i retired I had started writing books toward the end of my my newspaper career and uh, so I w- retired from that and was in a position to uh, kind of write books more or less full time but i I'm not having to pay the rent uh, off the books, which is a good thing for any modern day author. Sure. Um, but uh, I enjoy it. I like the research. I like the writing, and so that's pretty much what I've been doing.
1: Yeah, no, that that's incredible. So you st- um, so you probably you saw like so much so much change. I would imagine in in that business, um, it, like, like near the end, were you kind of like relieved to get out of it, like the day to day grind of it, or was it something? Like you were like kind of hesitant to give up or was it time or just a combination of feelings?
0: I think it was a combination. When I started, literally when I started, it was with typewriters. Now they were electric typewriters, which it's again, your younger listeners will say, well, what's a typewriter, (laughs) uh, let alone what's an electric typewriter. But I started my journalism career just as computerization was coming in the newsrooms at newspapers, um, and so I went through the whole deal. I remember working at a newspaper uh, in the uh, oh, it must have been the early '90s, and everybody was excited because we got portable telephones that we could take with us in the field when we went to cover a forest fire or whatever it was. These things weighed about three and a half pounds, and you needed a small boy to carry it for you. <laughs> but we were, that was exciting stuff. And by the time I had I had retired, uh, we were expected, we were not only had a print product, um, we had a website that we had to feed constantly. We had, we had to tweet if we were covering something that was of import. Um, some of us had blogs. Uh, I was a columnist when I left the business. And so I was expected to blog occasionally. And so it it was. I was ready to leave um, when it came time. But again, that gets back to the part I was ready to retire the day after I started. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh, that's great. It seems like it probably yeah, like like more things were just stacked on top of like the regular job. So you were doing the job and then more things with, you know, with just like the necessity of that business being able to survive.
0: Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You were, uh, my first newspaper was a, was an afternoon newspaper. So we had very tight deadlines. So I learned to organize and write in a hurry because we had to get the paper out. Um, then I went to morning newspapers and, uh, the dines were a little more relaxed but you still learn to write in a hurry and newspaper journalism is often described as history in a hurry <laughs> um, and uh, but by the time I had left it was you were on a 24 hour news cycle basically because the web was always alive mm-hmm. so if something happened after the print product had gone to bed and couldn't be changed there was always the web to put things on uh, then came uh, Twitter, and then came uh, uh, vlogging uh, or blogging, um, and uh, so yeah, it became it became much more. The feeding the beast became a much more difficult task, and they weren't paying me four or five salaries to do it. So. Right? <laughs>
1: yeah, good time to get out, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, so uh,
0: where in Arizona are you located? we're in i'm in in a retirement community that's about 45 miles northwest of uh downtown phoenix called sun city. we what this time of year it's beautiful it's, it's gorgeous and we call it sun city west in july we call it hell's waiting room <laughs> <laughs> pretty so, bad huh? <laughs> yeah it can it can get pretty toasty here uh the locals like to call it a dry heat but uh That's dry as in convection oven or (laughs) microwave oven. Um, (laughs) uh,
1: Um, So what what brought you there? Like just a a retirement, kind of a
0: a new new landscape? Yeah, basically that was it. We had, my wife and I both grew up in San Diego. That was my first newspaper job, was in working for the San Diego Evening Tribune. Um, I was offered a job with the San Francisco Chronicle. And so we moved up to Northern California. Then I worked for the Sacramento Bee and was still in Northern California. We lived in Sacramento for quite a while. And uh, uh, the uh, one day we were coming home from vacation after I had retired. And my wife said, do you miss home? And I said, not really. So we looked around the Southwest and we found a place we liked. And here we are. And so far it's worked out well. We've been here about six or seven years. Oh, that's great. That's awesome um
1: well yeah that that's uh that's i i am really kind of jumping back to the book i mean reading through this i was like i want to go to these places so some of the places um it sounds like you you traveled to a lot of these places in your research or you you had done so before um what were some of your favorite stops i know like um I know Deadwood is like a functioning town today and right. uh, different places like that. So, what, what were some of your favorite uh, places to visit um, in, that were mentioned in the book?
0: Well, uh, I went to the the six events, uh, and maybe I should quickly go over the six events that I'm talking about yeah, here. And they're sort of in, in the, they're presented in the book in chronological order as they happened in 1876, and the first had to do with Bat uh, Masterson when he was 23 year old buffalo hunter, got into a saloon fight over a dance hall girl, in a little town called Sweetwater, Texas, uh, which is up in the Texas Panhandle, and he shot and killed the his his uh, opponent, but he was badly wounded as well. So that was the first event. The second event was uh, Wyatt Earp becoming a deputy marshal in Dodge City, Kansas. The third event was uh, the Battle of the Little Bighorn in June of 1876. That was followed a few weeks later by Buffalo Bill Cody was in a skirmish with Indians in uh, part of Nebraska called the Battle of Warbonnet Creek. And he actually, in, was involved in a gun duel with uh, an Indian, uh, a Cheyenne sub lieutenant, and shot and killed the uh, the Cheyenne, scalped him, and raised the scalp and said, "This is the first scalp for Custer," uh, as if he were avenging Custer's death. And then, of course, then he later parlayed that into uh, to his uh, Wild West show. Uh, the fifth event was uh, Wild Bill Hickok being shot in the back of the head while playing poker in Deadwood, uh, South Dakota. And the last event was the robbery of the Northfield, Minnesota bank by the James Younger gang. Um, So I I visited all of those places at least twice. A couple I'd been to before I started the research on the book. Um, And to answer your question finally, um, the uh, two places that struck me the most were the Little Bighorn National Monument and uh, Northfield, Minnesota, of Mm. of all places, which you don't think of as being in the Wild West. Right. Um, And for very different reasons. I had been to the Little Bighorn National Monument years ago and it was pretty much told from the Seventh Cavalry's point of view. Uh, In fact, it had been called the Custer uh, National Monument, and uh, it took it was a long long process it involved congress and involved uh, demonstrations at the site but it's been renamed now the little bighorn national monument and there are now things from the perspective of the winners who happen to be the native american (laughs) tribes and so it's much more balanced and it's you get much you really get a good feel of of what it must have been like on both sides to have been involved in this desperate battle. All the politics out of it, all the racism, all the uh, genocidal policies, all the other extraneous things to that particular event really come across when you're there. Um, And then Northfield, Northfield, Minnesota is a beautiful little college town about 30 miles south of Minneapolis-St. Paul. But they have done a very thoughtful and very uh, creative Restoration of the bank as the day it, in 1876 when it was robbed by the younger brothers and the James boys, um, and really present it in a really nice way, but they don't overdo it. That it's not overrun by Jesse James hot dogs and that kind of stuff. <laughs> they and they still have a memorial every year to the bank teller who, rather than open up the safe and give away the town's money. Was shot in the head by Frank James and killed, mm. and he's still memorialized every year in a nice ceremony. We happened to be there the day they they did, and uh, the year we were there. So uh, those two really stick out. Uh, now, and conversely, if you go to Sweetwater, Texas, which has now been renamed mobiti Texas, it's a town of about a hundred. Uh, there's there's nothing there. I mean, there are a hundred people that live mm. there. I don't know what they do because I couldn't find any of them. <laughs> uh, there's no grocery store. There's no Subway. There's no Taco Bell. It's very uncivilized. Uh-huh. And uh, the only thing there is is an old cemetery where they have a plaque for the dance hall girl that Bat Masterson got in the fight over, and she was killed during the fight oh, wow. um, yeah, by the right, yeah. by the bad guy. So there's a plaque where her where her grave is. And uh, that's really about it. And then at the Warbonnet uh, Creek battlefield, where Buffalo Bill fought and killed a Cheyenne warrior and scalped him, um, there it's it's in the middle of nowhere. You really, it took us hours to find it. There's nothing there except a kind of a nondescript concrete plaque uh, on a on a little obelisk in the middle of this field. That they have barbed wire around to keep the cows out, (laughs) and we were there for two hours and never saw a living soul except the cows. (laughs) Uh, So, and then in between is Dodge City and Deadwood, which are both real cities um, that uh, have taken a that really embrace their their uh, image uh, as Wild West towns. But in a little different way, um, Deadwood is a little bit more Disneylandish, and uh, Dodge City is, a re- is still literally a cow town. The two biggest employers in Dodge City, Kansas, are cattle uh, uh, processors. So uh, it's it was it was fascinating to go around to these places and see how how diverse they were.
1: <clears throat> yeah, that no, that's a uh, that's uh, that's exactly what I was curious about because i do i love road trips i think this would be you know an incredible um you know to be able to travel through and see some of these spots and like you said like you go to some places and you know they they very they may very much make a big deal out of like what happened there or what the history is and other places you would never know that anything ever even went down there yeah yeah incredible um well, yeah. So are there, you know, I know this book is, is pretty new, but is there, are there any new projects that you're um, kind of spitballing around to, to either you are working on now or, or you want to start working on in the future?
0: Well, I'm actually writing, I'm actually in the process of writing another book uh, that I had kind of started on uh, while in the, while this book was, was being finished and, and, uh, perfected i hope um, as much as it's going to be yeah and so i'm off on a i I actually started the writing this just last week or two uh about a baseball player that uh nobody ever heard of um he played in the 1950s and uh i i had always wanted to do i'm a big baseball fan i'd always wanted to do a biography or a story about baseball and I wanted to do something on an average player. This is a guy whose name is Danny O'Connell. He played for 10 years in the big leagues, um, in the 1950s. Um, he had a very average career, but in terms of statistics, but he lasted 10 years, which is twice as long as most major league baseball players last. And, uh, So, I got fascinated by that. And part of that was because I used, when I was a kid, I collected baseball cards and I always get a Danny O'Connell card. And number one, I didn't know who the hell Danny O'Connell was. (laughs) Number two, I didn't care. I didn't like him because I wanted to get Willie Mays or Stan Musial or some big star. Uh, So, I started looking into his background. He had a fascinating life. He had, four children all grew up to be very successful in large part because they attended college because of his baseball pension. Um, And the more I looked into his career, uh, I realized that there's a difference between being a common player, which is what baseball cards of average players are called and being a, an, an average player in which he wasn't, he was a little different than most players and i guess the subplot of the of the book is baseball card collecting and kind of what has morphed from when i was a kid back when the earth was still cooling and you bought baseball cards for a nickel and you got a little slab of pink something that was supposed to be bubble gum (laughs) and you could either chew it or use it as a shingle on the (laughs) um but you got five cards or six cards for a nickel and you did various things with them, and nobody ever thought they were worth anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now uh, it has evolved into both a hobby for the very rich and an investment tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was—I I had not collected baseball cards in years, and I was shocked to find that it's part of Wall Street portfolios. These are now—we're talking about little wow. pieces of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not talking about Monet's or Rodin's or something like that. And yet, uh, I, I saw a baseball, a Mickey Mantle, a 1952 Mickey Mantle card just sold for $12.2 2 million. Goodness. And it's heavily locked away in a in a bank security vault. So it's not like you can flip it or trade it or play with it um, or even look at it unless you go to the <laughs> bank and, you know, have your guard come out. <laughs> so it, that's the crux of the of is this player who is a common card in the nineteen fifties um versus uh what baseball card collecting has become since then, and those are sort of the two key elements of the book oh, that sounds
1: fascinating i yeah I can't wait to read that um no that is that is so interesting just how you know a, a lot of um you know things from you know this sounds like my dad's era where it's like he he had a great comic book collection he said growing up in the in the 50s and right there's no like no no idea that those things would be worth anything
0: no no and his baseball cards and comic books is a is a good uh companion to that those of us who grew up in the 50s and and even into the say the early 60s uh you collected comic books until you discovered Playboy, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then that was the end of the comic books. That was the end of the uh, comic <laughs> Baseball cards were sort of the same way. Uh, you, you collected baseball cards um, to a certain point, and then it wasn't cool to collect baseball cards anymore. Uh, yeah, it was a kid's. So, it was a kid's thing. It was what you did as a kid, <laughs> right? And and the, getting back to the the Wild West book is sort of the same thing. You played cowboys and Indians or cops or mm-hmm. bank robbers and sheriffs or whatever until a certain point And then you didn't do that anymore. Right. Um, and uh, uh, what, so in, in this book, I tried, as I said before, I, I tried not to just make it something for wild West aficionados uh, of which there are quite a few, but to try to juxtapose that with all of the things that were going on in this particular year um and it was the publisher's idea my original title was just year of the gun Mm -hmm. and his idea was to let's get 1876 in there because that's sort of the the nexus of the whole book uh that this year is so pivotal in american history um
1: yeah no now like it definitely stands out to me more now than ever i think that that year just like reading through this and um you know just the amount of crossover and like you said like america going on to the next like stage of development um just a just fascinating stuff here um let's see what was i gonna as we kind of as we kind of finish up i think like it it is interesting to see like like kind of the cyclical nature of of things that that um you know culture gets interested in I think like I was talking to my wife just recently about we were watching stranger things and on Netflix and how like we grew up in the eighties and now this like, there's this like huge, it seems, at least seems to us this huge eighties resurgence with like, you know, we just had a comic con here in Salt Lake city um, and people are all just dressed up in like eighties characters or, or, you know, so it's just, it's, it's kind of wild. It seems like it takes about 30 years for things to kind (laughs) of come back. And now it's like, you know, I'm seeing light brights at target yesterday
0: on the right. shelves. <laughs> so yeah, it's, things, it, it, things it's, do it. come back. Well, as the, as I said, that Twain said, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't repeat. It's history. doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It rhymes. <laughs> and uh, it, that's, you know, that's true in, in popular culture. It's true in politics. It's true in, uh, who we, who we hold up as, you know, our celebrities of the moment. And, uh, it's probably true of music too uh oh, sure. and, and the arts in general
1: yeah mm-hmm. no I, I mean i think if something is interesting at one point and you know it kind of loses steam it comes back you know like it, i see concerts that come through here all the time bands that were huge in the 80s that you hadn't really heard of in a while but now they're playing these like massive outdoor um you know stadiums out here uh people are bringing their kids you know yeah. and somebody had you know, this a whole new generation of fans so i think like the same thing applies to you know a topic like this you know the the Wild West. I mean it can it never gets boring, um, you know. And I think like it just it just keeps coming back. So, um, yeah. Uh, any anything else you want to add as we kind of finish up today?
0: No, that's it, it's. I hope the book's going to appeal to not just old fogies like me and <laughs> and who remember the the fifties and the big Western movie and TV craze. Um, or the the real diehard uh, uh, fans of of the old west yeah but also people are just interested in seeing uh, how legends are are created and what's at the root of them and uh, uh, how popular culture uh, one thing i I did want to point to is that and we touched on this a little bit earlier most Americans in the 1870s got their perspective of perceptions of what was going on in the wild West from cheap fictionalized books and melodramas that were at the local uh, Bijou theater where there was fake shooting and rope tricks and things like that. And it's not too different now that be- so those, those became truths to those people because that's what they saw over and over and over again and if you think about social media now uh if you are a social media uh, habituate uh (laughs) habituate um and you see something repeated often enough from different sources whether or not it's true or not it becomes true it becomes accepted and and so it wasn't any different in 1876 than it is today which just tells you something i guess about good or bad about human nature um but it also tells us a little bit i hope if if people read the book they'll get a little sense of our identity as as americans and how there is a continuity going back to you know 150 years ago yeah i think
1: i think definitely I, i highly recommend it for people because i you know i'm a I'm a history buff, but this is a this is an era or a specific you know portion of U.S. history that I you know I I knew about and I had read a little bit about, but not a whole lot. So I was definitely not a diehard. Like I learned so much, and I just love the way like we already mentioned how it connects um, to the broader scope of American history, and just um, you know that's a that's a that's a really good point you just brought out about the social media. I mean, it can it connects, and I think that's something I'm going to use with my students um and talk to them about that but um no i think it definitely does do the cro- crossover very well so highly recommend it for people we'll make sure we put links up um for people to to find it and purchase it um because it, yeah excellent book 1876 year of the gun uh steve thank you so much for for joining me today it was really fun um meeting you and chatting you um with you about all this stuff
0: well, thank you, Connor. I appreciate uh, you uh, taking time and and uh, airtime uh, to talk to me, then. and uh, absolutely it was great meeting you as
1: well. Absolutely. So I look forward to the new book, and you know I'll reach out um, down the road, and and hopefully we can have you back on again to talk about um, the baseball book. That would be
0: great. Terrific. I do look forward to it. Okay. Take care. All right. You too. Okay. Bye.